Bismillah, wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Um, it's my pleasure to host this discussion, the fiqh of political detainees, a very unique discussion, inshallah, which we'll talk about uh, a bit more in a second. Um, my name is Asim Qureshi. For those of you who don't know, um, I am the research director of the NGO Cage. With me today is my, my colleague, uh, Brother Marzen Beg, who is the outreach director of CAGE as well. But, you know, just as importantly, even more importantly, uh, he is also a former Guantanamo Bay detainee. And so um, just to kind of introduce the topic a little bit first before I bring Mazem in, uh, we're going to talk for about 45 minutes, inshallah, maybe a little bit longer. I've got some questions I'm going to ask Mazem. And then hopefully we'll open up for some Q&A as well, maybe from your own work or your own life or your own experiences, you have some uh, some things that you want to share. So hopefully in the second half, we'll get a chance to hear from, from some of you as well. So this discussion in particular, it's really focusing around how, you know, these Guantanamo Bay detainees, they understood the Quranic injunction of fear Allah as much as you can. That's really the center of this because they're in a very difficult situation, but yet they hold on to this idea that you know they have to try and retain as much of their Islam as they can, and we'll hear more uh, from Muslim about why that they felt that was so important as part of their strategies of survival. Um, and what's interesting about you know the detainees in Guantanamo because they were you know over seven hundred is that they almost covered every denomination and madhab within Islam that you can think of. Um, so literally any any different sect, um, you know, grouping, methodology, whatever you had, you, you found it in Guantanamo. And so, of course, what that brings with it, and a number of these people were scholars as well, they were scholars of Islam, uh, are these kind of discussions and contestations about the way in which Islam is best practiced in a situation like that. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Mars and more about that as well. But just, I want to put something in your mind before we fully begin, which is that with the global war on terror, with the way that the detentions took place, there was a specific attack that was used against the culture and religion of Muslims. Um, you can go back to um, Raphael Bataille's The Arab Mind and the way that that was weaponized by the US military in the course of these detentions. When you start studying um, the way that interrogations were taking place in detention sites like, like Bagram in Guantanamo Bay itself, you'll see that, you know, specifically they understood the cultural needs or soft spots of Muslims and they tried to, um, uh, try to harm them through that. So Eric Saar, for example, he was one of the interrogators. He describes how he witnessed a female interrogator pretend to smear menstrual blood on the the face of a detainee and then they turn the taps uh in his cell off so he couldn't access any water and you know they would mock him and say to him that effectively like you're on you're richly unclean now you won't be able to wash so so fiqh and understanding of fiqh in these moments is so important and you know inshallah what we'll hear from marzan is about how how that became part of their survival mechanism too so that's the the remarks i just wanted to say to preface 
this discussion. And really, I want to hear more from Mazen. So I'm going to go straight into a series of six questions that I want to ask him. The first one really being about a story. Uh, and I've heard Mazen's story many times. So I'm, it's, it's always uh, pleasing for me to like hear these different anecdotes. You know, there's a story, Mazen, uh, about your first prayer on a rendition flight after your kidnapping. Can you give us some context to, to that moment and for this discussion in particular? Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulullah. Uh, my pleasure and honor to have this discussion. I think it's, it's not a discussion that's had very often uh, and one that requires, um, you know, discussion in depth, I think. Uh, just one caveat, is, that is that I, I was in Guantanamo for three years and really the experts on, the, on this subject are the people of knowledge from within the Guantanamo prisoners who not only were there for many years, but also and, and it's from them that I take my cue and often seek my guidance in these matters and beyond. But in answer to your question, Asim, that was my first prayer in U.S. military custody. It was, it was still in uh, with a group of other uh, prisoners who most of them, I, I couldn't see them at all because I was, my head was hooded. And uh, they took me onto this C-130 transport plane, which was the plane that they were using to transport us from Pakistan, where we'd been handed over to the Americans, uh, and then to Kandahar, where they were they the, the first um, detention site or detention base. And it was there where we were, I was, uh, you know, put onto the floor of the C-130 transport plane, uh, my legs were shackled, my arms, my, my wrists were shackled behind my back. As I said, I had a hood over my head, so I couldn't, I couldn't uh, see anything, but I could make out because of the cloth um, flashes of cameras and, of course, sounds of dogs barking and uh, soldiers screaming, prisoners screaming, the roar of the engines, clicks of guns, and, and all of, uh, rounds being chambered. Uh, and... Um, they put a strap across across my legs, and and all, I think there were other people with me. Though, as I said, I couldn't see them, other prisoners, and strapped down like cargo. And uh, so the first mo moment at which I, I got the idea that somebody's next to me is when somebody said "Salam alaikum," and I knew it wasn't a soldier. Um, I said "Wa alaikum assalam," and uh, the first thing this brother says after he you know he says he's Libyan and so forth. Um, is that, Akhi, hal salayta salat al-Maghrib? I said, La akhi, na ma salayta. I haven't prayed. Have you prayed salat al-Maghrib? I said, no. He said, Aadhan al-salat qad dakhal. Waqt al-salat qad dakhal. The time for prayer has, has come. So we should pray. And I was shocked. I was genuinely shocked because I thought that's the last thing on my mind. And just at this moment, when he was speaking to me, uh, a soldier came and he put a knife to my neck and he said, if you speak again, I'll slit your throat. And at that point, and I found it funny because at that point, the brother said, Allahu Akbar. And he began the prayer because I told him, you lead the prayer, you're, on the, you're evidently on the left. So that's how we conducted our salah. So this was a salah without sujood, a salah without ruku. A salah without without sitting in this way you know, you do in tashahud. Um, the only thing we could do was the recitation of the Quran and uh, uh, the taslim, because you could turn your head, and that's it. And and this reminds me of 
of, of the whole point of the Salah is that it isn't, you know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and the, the, the verse goes on and on and explains that bir, goodness, isn't whether you face east or west. Goodness is a series of beliefs followed with actions. And essentially that's in Surah Al-Baqarah, that's what it is. And it reminded me that this, this religion isn't a religion of ritualism. And this, uh, you know, as I've thought about this often since that time, uh, makes me think that you can pray if you wish, however you want, wherever you want, uh, uh, whatever circumstances you're in. And the only one that can stop you from that is you. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a verse in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that those who remember Allah standing, um, sitting, or, or lying down, whichever position they're in. So it just reminds you of this, the beauty of Islam, and that it's not, it doesn't tie us down to purely ritualism. Can I ask you how you felt? Um during that that particular prayer i mean like here you are on a on a rendition flight you're um in sensory deprivation you're strapped down to the to the floor of a of a plane you're trying to pray in jamaa with a brother who's in exactly the same situation with you who who is the one who remembered to pray in the, you know in the first place like what did that that particular prayer feel like you know what what how did it leave you feeling in terms of your relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and to the moment that you're in which is of course I can't even imagine how scary that moment was to not know what your fate was on the other end well this was the, remember this is the beginning of so I'd been held in Pakistani custody and the, whilst that was difficult it, I wasn't in, in you know I was still in Pakistan as it were and they weren't mistreating me a, 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 any more than they were mistreating anybody else but this was different now this was this was terrifying this was the war on terror really uh, with with terror being the operative word how i felt was i i would have said i, I mean i'd say clearly that i wouldn't have prayed had that, had that brother not come and sat next to me and said shall we pray i wouldn't have prayed i'm pretty certain of that because i would have waited until i'm in a fixed spot where i'm wherever i'm going to be uh, uh, in a cell or whatever it is then i would have prayed and combined my prayers but this brother he he, he reminded me, I think he was sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order that I could, you see, I've never met that brother ever again. So I think I'm, I may have, I'm not, I'm not even too sure uh, when I went to Libya in 2012. But that brother, I think that story didn't come from him. It's come from me. And I've told it so many, to so many people. And it's, it, it, it's less of a something for me than it more than it is an example for people to remember, to follow, to follow that your prayers so important to you. Um, but my feeling at the time was that I'm not even thinking about praying. And yet this brother has been sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remind me in the salat and the the prayers are, are at their fixed prescribed times. Subhanallah, for sharing that. Um, the answer to this next one, you know, it might seem quite obvious for, for many people, but I, I don't think they can really appreciate how, how difficult a moment this was for you all. You know, when you, you're, when you were detained in Bagram, um, you were given a very, very small amount of water, like so minuscule that it was almost, I guess, like you had to make a choice. 
between you know kind of ablution or you know, drinking to stay alive like how how did you understand your relationship to to kind of this water and and what it meant for all the other brothers you know how did they see its importance in terms of like for example something as simple as keeping clean well you know by Allah's grace I have been in I have already been in many times in places where there was no water or, or not enough water to to uh, to wash uh, before before Afghan before sorry imprisonment uh, uh, and Afghanistan itself there was many many occasions where we'd had to make what's known as tayammum or dry ablution Allah says if you don't find water if there is not enough water then do the dry ablution uh, and so th- this was quite simple and it was a simple way to do it there were two ways to do it essentially one was the way that um, a lot of the Arabs did it and probably the way that I did uh, most of the time. And then the, the way that the Afghans did, which was the way of the Hanafi way. But there wasn't much difference in, in either. Um, and so people already knew because Afghanistan is a dry land and uh, it's hard sometimes in some, some journeys to find water. Uh, so it's not that people didn't know how to do it. It's that, that we had to do it. We had to make the choice. And the choice was simply you drink that 500 milliliter uh, bottle of water that they give you um, or you don't. And if you don't drink it and you use it and you waste it, uh, I would say to waste it to make wudu, um, then you're not going to get a replacement so easily. Uh, so that was quite clear. And in addition to this, there was we didn't make ghusl or, or, or uh, we didn't. I mean, it's just hard to explain that water is a commodity. We're in Britain in an, in an island. Here, where, where water is just everywhere, lakes and rivers, and uh, we, we open the tap, we don't think have a second thought. But water there was literally a, a commodity, um, and if you ran out of it, there were days when they wouldn't replenish, replenish your water, so you just have to wait. Um, and this goes for everything, for washing. I mean, uh, the, the the idea of going to, of having a bath. Um, in itself was so difficult because they'd strip us naked and parade us and shower us down or hose us down in this particular area that was so debilitating and um, uh, humiliating, especially for a lot of the Afghans and, and others who'd never experienced anything like this before. Um, so water was a, of course, it's a blessing, but it was sometimes a curse as well. Yeah, I didn't think about it from the other perspective. Of course, that that's something that you know we, you know, we know. I, I, there's a really um, difficult scene in that movie Camp X-ray. I don't know if you ever ever watched it, where yeah. he's forced to take yeah, a shower in front of the the female guard. I thought that was a particularly powerful moment in the, in the movie. kind of like how difficult you know it's like the most forms of torture we know of but how those moments were the that particularly violence um to the brothers it would see that you're a conundrum you want to wash you haven't washed weeks uh, and you the only way you can wash the way that you do these i mean those shows it's not there were shows with no Entrances, long queues, the 
uh, these shops and take you there um, and then they take you in there and it's 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 um, deeply humiliating because it's not just that you're in front of female guards and others you're in front of other brothers who you deeply respect and uh, it's difficult to describe that kind of uh, violation so I've uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, um, interviewing you know hundreds of, of, of brothers who have been in various detention situations, um, but you know I guess in some ways the Guantanamo experience was was very particular because you were taken so far away from your homes, and you know with all the Gitmo detainees, I always ask them one question um, just because I'm so fascinated by the range of responses. Did you consider yourself a Musafir uh, uh -huh. during the period of your detention? And and how did your position uh, differ? And sorry for those who aren't uh, familiar with that that term. Safid is a is a traveller, and uh, so maybe you can just describe why that's important, Marzen, to to the audience. Yeah. So I mean, uh, you, you made the point about there was different people there from different Islamic schools of thought, and that's really important because according to the various schools of thought, one one becomes a traveller uh, for a certain amount of days, and based upon the length or, or the the distance of that travel, um, and so forth. Uh, people were pretty much unanimous here in Guantanamo that we were all, it's ironic, we're travellers, but we're travellers held by force in a particular place. So the ruling of a traveller, of course, is a person who's free to travel and free to leave uh, and has the choice to, to remain. And then as a result of that, continues his prayers as if he is uh, what's known as muqim or somebody has intended to stay in a place for more than a certain amount of days. We had not intended to stay there. Uh, we had not even intended to go there. And of course, as, as, as Muslims, we know that every action is based upon your intention. So considering we'd never intended to go there, let alone remain there uh, for years on end, um, it was quite clear and quite easy to conclude that we were uh, we had the position of travellers, meaning that we could and did shorten our prayers. And that was travelling. When a person travels, this is a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are granted to shorten our prayers. Those prayers that, con that contain four units of prayer are shortened to two units of prayer. And we are allowed to, on uh, occasions of, uh, if something's happening or we're going to be moving, and in, in, in particularly in relation to Guantanamo, if, if we are taking to interrogation, we know that we won't be able to pray our prayers because we'll be shackled, uh, our legs will be shackled to, to, a, um, to a hole on the floor, to a, or to a bolt on the floor. We won't be able to get up and pray properly. So we take what's known as the rukhsa or the, the, the easy way or the license for us to be able to combine our prayers. So we shorten and combine in those circumstances. Uh, there were some, I, I was speaking to one of the brothers who was there in Guantanamo for 14 years, and he told me there were some, uh, mostly from the, the Hanafi school of thought, not all of them, but a handful, who, who took the view to complete their prayers. And again, that, that in itself, this was the beauty of Islam, is that that also is a respected position, because they felt that they couldn't go on continuously um, shortening their prayers, because the long-term effect uh, upon them would be to lose um, the very essence of a, a fixed prayer that has the certain units in it. Um, but this was the beauty, that there was differences of opinion amongst the prisoners on different things, but a great deal of respect because of they understood 
this was the way of 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 Muslims who differed on uh, um, things of of fiqh or fiqhi issues, uh, issues of jurisprudence, as it were. Did did taking the position that you're musafir um, feel like a subversive act? You know, almost like you were telling yourself, like, "I'm this isn't home. This isn't something that I'm." optionally taken up and therefore you know in order to remind myself of the fact that i've been kidnapped i'm going to maintain my status as a musafir is that something that that factored into your thinking at all or was it you know more just strictly along the lines of the the madhab that you followed which is how you came to your conclusion i think perhaps to me it was a little bit of a resistance but it, it i know that it would would be totally lost on our captors whether we combine our prayers shorten our prayers uh, complete our prayers, or even do our prayers in any way. Or other. I think that would have been um, not. I would say not a, an, a major issue amongst our captors. Having said that, uh, a question that was often um, I heard from interrogators, at least in the early days, was: Are you religious? Do you pray? Do you know X, Y, Z? Is he religious? Does he pray? So there was some sort of sense of, um, for us, for me at least, that this is a small act of resistance, but. Just like Ramadan and fasting, if we don't have to fast if we're travelers. It's not, we're not required to. We have, we have, again, we have a, a rukhsa, we have a, um, a Quranic injunction which allows us to postpone those fasts while we're in a state of travel to another day, or indeed if we're sick. Um, so we didn't have to, but I don't think that anybody uh, you know, did that. And, and people did uh, fast. And again, that was to remind ourselves and to, to make sure that this doesn't become normal, that not fasting, not completing our prayers, uh, not doing those things, though we could have a rigid residual effect upon us, which means that we, it, it will become normalized, especially if we're in prison for years on end without any um, end in sight. And what about, you know, I know you were in isolation for a considerable so maybe your experience was a little bit different, but were there kind of like interesting ways in which you tried to make jama'at with one another in, in the salah? Um, you know, was that... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, so there was different periods of time where I did manage to pray in, in jama'at or in, in congregation with different prisoners in different places. So in Bagram, for example, where there were 10 of us, uh, an average of 10 of us or so or less in each communal cell, we could stand next to one another and pray for, in, for the early days, for the first. And in the early days, we called the Adhan, we made the call to prayer, we recited the prayer loud, we stood together uh, as in a jama'ah, in, in a um, in congregation. Um, but it was, unfortunately, an Egyptian interrogator, an American Egyptian interrogator, who said, and I quote, told the other American um, um, his American compatriots who were high-ranking high officers, these people, when they call the Adhan, that's not the call to prayer. They are talking to one another. Because in Bagram, you're not allowed to talk. We weren't allowed to talk. There was an injunction against talking. If you talked, you'd be taken to the front of the cell and they'd tie your hands above your head to the top of the bridge and leave you there suspended with a hood over your head. So we couldn't talk. But they would give that exemption for prayer because they felt that's prayer. The Egyptian... Uh, um, guy said, these guys are talking to one another while they're calling the quote, and they're talking to one another while they're praying. The imam, he's not actually reciting the Quran, he's talking to them. And 
This was such a lie. It was such a uh, an intentional thing that he did in order to break. And from that point onwards, they never allowed us to pray in congregation. Uh, they never allowed us to recite the Quran uh, with a louder voice. Um, and so forth. And that became the rule in Bagram for, for the next year. It, it never changed. They never allowed us to pray in, in uh, congregation ever after that. Um, so that's one example. Uh, there were other examples in, in Guantanamo when I was on the blocks and wasn't in solitary confinement. Each person is in a separate cell that's about um, two meters squared. Um, and so you can't pray in congregation. You can't stand shoulder to shoulder, let alone um, foot to foot. Uh, but you can appoint somebody who is at the front of the cell block. You know, there's 24 cells on either side of a 48-cell block. And the person, whoever happens to be at the front, is the imam, and he leads the prayer. And we pray behind him. So that was one way in uh, sort of uh, way that the people, that the prisoners just conformed around um, how they would pray in congregation. <laughs> it sounds so amazing when when you say it like that because it's it's hard to imagine right like a a communal prayer um taking place in in such an environment i'm 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 guessing that there had to be multiple people probably who were repeating um the the takbirat uh throughout the salah to make sure the guys at the back could um could hear. Yes, that did happen. Um, that, I mean, on the block where I was, there, wasn't, there weren't that many people, so there was no need for it. But yes, I did hear it. Of course, that was happening. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the person who you'd hope that the person at the front of the cell has, has a good voice. Uh, and and I, when I mean a good voice, I mean he has a loud voice, because if, he's, if he has a quiet voice, um, as, as many people do, then you, you can't hear what's being recited, and you can barely hear any takbirat or any... any uh, you know, directions for you to get into prayer, any any particular aspect of the prayer. In in your case in particular, you were held in in isolation with you know without any access to um, sunlight, as far as I uh, remember, understand. How did you determine um, the times of the prayer, and even you know the the direction to pray in? And I guess even knowing when, when Ramadan might start, I mean, I'm not sure that they, um, I know at some at various points they did allow the detainees to know. And, and I know specifically that sometimes they messed around with the start dates and the end dates of Ramadan. So um, it, it confused the detainees. But like, yeah, what was your personal experience in relation to it? Yeah, I mean, um, I was, I was yeah. speaking to Faiz and Kandari, who himself was in Guantanamo for 14 years, uh, just yesterday. And... Um, he was one of the, the, the considered one of the scholars of Guantanamo, and he he also said quite separately to me because we, he wasn't in Bagram when I was there, and he said pretty much the same thing in that um, we didn't know what prayer times were, we didn't know what any times were, we didn't have access to, especially in, in Bagram, and then later in Guantanamo in solitary confinement. I, I didn't know whether it was day or night until they opened the door and I could get a, get a view from uh, from it, the door whether it is there's any light coming in or out. Uh, and it was like that for quite some time. Decent soldiers, of which whom there were many, uh, would sometimes tell us of prayer times, tell us of other times, tell us of dates and stuff. But none of this, these things were given to us. We didn't have calendars. We didn't have watches or clocks or anything um, that would tell us what time it was. So we would estimate, assume, uh, and hope that somebody would tell us something, especially in the first year to two years. It was like that. 
Um, and again, as I said, that uh, there were times we didn't know which way the Qibla is. We didn't know which way the Mecca is. So uh, it's okay. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the, in the Quran, that wherever you are, face turn your face towards Allah. You'll be there. You'll, you'll be there. Again, Islam is not a religion of ritualism. That if you And this is what it taught me. It reminded me. Yes, of course, we do follow the rituals of Islam. But what if you can't? What if you don't have water? What if you don't know which way the Qibla is? What if you don't have food to uh, um, to break your fast or to uh, you know to, to to prepare for your fast? What if you don't have those things? What do you do then? And so Islam teaches us a great deal of wisdom and shows that how much rukhsa or um, leniency there is, and that's what I learned from it. Amazing, Subhanallah. I, I remember. Um... Speaking to uh, Ali Al-Mari, who was, who was detained on, as an enemy combat on U.S. soil for 13 years, um, about you know the same thing, asking him the same question about how uh, how he knew what the prayer time was because he was held in isolation too. And, you know, he said that um, I, uh, I I I kept on sneaking glances at the uh, the watches the guards were wearing when they would come and give me give me food, and so I you know kind of started to figure out patterns. In terms of what time of the day it was when I would be when I would be fed, and therefore I had a general idea. So like he was doing all this kind of investigation work, and what's so fascinating, I don't know if you remember Marzen, but I, I went through like thirty thousand pages of um, the interrogation logs that the Department of Defense and the FBI were keeping on yeah, um, remember, yeah. on uh, on his case, right? And there comes a moment in the interrogation logs where they're actually writing. We don't know how he's being so consistent with his prayer times, and it's like it's so amazing that you know he, you know, he's like doing all of this work, trying to figure out. Okay, I'm just, I'm I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my utmost to to try and figure this out as best as I can. And and then of course you know he said to me himself, and after that I just left it to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in terms of whether or not it was the correct time. But you know, knowing Allah's mercy in this situation, um. So, you know, part of the abuse um, of the the detainees, um, and and this I think probably caused more upset than I think anything else um, that I've encountered with any of the testimonies I've taken from from the former prisoners, which is the the abuse of the Quran. Um, and you know, whoever you speak to, from who's a released prisoner, they'll 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 of course tell you about all the. Um, terrible things that they that happened to them, but the real when when you see them really getting upset when they're recounting their stories is when they recount the stories of um, the abuse of the Quran itself. So you know how did the detainees protect um, the Quran? You know, and the physical mushaf from being abused by by the guards. You know, I think this is a very important thing that we 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 should kind of bear in mind. Um, that the Quran in itself, in and of itself, was never revealed primarily as a book. It was revealed to a man who, when he was set, when it was said to him, "Iqra, read, proclaim," his response was, "Ma ana biqari, I cannot read." And he was known as Muhammad and Nabi al Ummi or the unlettered prophet. And so the the Quran was revealed into his heart, and from his heart it went to the hearts of his companions, Rudwanullah alaihim. And they wrote it and put it together only because the Hufad or the memorizers of the Qur'an were being killed in the defense of Islam, um, especially at the Battle of Yamama where the false prophet uh, presented himself. 
and it was only after that. So it's really important that we kind of understand that it was always this was the, the, the it was never about the book. The book in itself has become, um, of course, something that's deeply, deeply uh, sacred to us. And when we saw it, which I did in the very early days in, in Kandahar, uh, that the Quran was ripped into pieces and thrown into the toilet, into, not even the toilet, into buckets, because we had to use, and the soldiers used buckets for defecation and urination, and that's what they did. And uh, when I was in Bagram, I remember they, they, they were throwing Qurans to prisoners. Oh, yeah, we're distributing Qurans to you. You guys want Qurans? Come get your Qurans. Learn how to kill Americans. That's how they were doing it. And that kind of ignorance, um, of course, it inflamed many of the prisoners. But if you look at the longer term vision of this, I just want to share with you something. It's really powerful. Just today, and I found it in my spam, I mean, a few days ago, I sp found it in my spam folder was a, 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 a message from an American soldier who said, my brother, he, he addresses as my brother, and he's got photographs of him in his military gear. And he says, my brother, I want to tell you that I was in Bagaram. I don't know if you remember, but I was one of the people guarding you. And I want to say that I am deeply ashamed and I'm so sorry for what happened to you. I tried my best not to do anything that would mistreat any other prisoners, but I know I was part of that system, to paraphrase. And then he says the, the most amazing thing. He says that I'm a Native American and I know what it's like to be mistreated because even my, my grandparents were not even citizens of my own land. And then he said, I had a blast trauma which affected my brain when I was in Afghanistan. And then I picked up the Qur'an, he describes it, he calls it Al-Qur'an Al-Kareem. And he said, I picked up Al-Quran Al-Kareem and when I read it, it gave me a great deal of solace and uh, tranquility. And uh, he, he, he sent photographs of himself as, as, as a, you know, dressed in uh, his military garb and also as a, um, taking part in ceremonies, Native American ceremonies. And I just replied to him today about this. I found it very, very moving, but he wasn't the only one. There were so many soldiers that I've come across who have looked at this, looked at the Qur'an, and found guidance and found acceptance. Even those who didn't, um, afterwards, because of our connection to the Qur'an, and knowing that the abuses of the Qur'an took place, and we'd have to witness that, um, I've come across so many soldiers who, who uh, uh, have a different, completely different view because of what they, they themselves were involved in. I mean, yeah, it's just when you whenever you hear these stories, it, it really leaves you with goosebumps because, you know, however difficult that experience was for all of you, there are just so many karamat that came out of um, that time that the brothers recalled. You know, I, I can't I can't remember ever being with a single, um, you know, kind of released brother and getting a sense of anything other than just complete firmness in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, you know, his uh, promise that after hardship comes ease. Yeah. I, I just want to add, Asim, yeah. is that, you know, one thing is that when, the, um, when the soldiers were abusing or desecrating the Qur'an, 
I remember making this dua, you know, saying to Allah, oh Allah, in the Quran, you say, inna nahnu nazzalna dhikr wa inna lahu lahafidhun, that we have sent down the remembrance, i.e. the Quran, and we shall maintain its, pres uh, its uh, preservation. So I say, oh Allah, please preserve your book, because we can't. And I thought, yes, we can. We can preserve your book by memorizing it. And so, I mean, I won't say that I memorized the, all of the Quran, but I memorized so much of the Quran that to this day, my, the knowledge I have of that Quran is because of my imprisonment. My, it's because of my imprisonment. I knew some of the Quran, but not the way I know it now. Now, I mean, pretty much you can recite any surah and I'll, I'll say, okay, I know where that verse is from. I know where it is. And I, I didn't have that kind of knowledge before. I, I memorized Surah Al-Baqarah in Bagram. And that day when it happened, because it was for me, it was like the, it was the biggest achievement in the Quran as far as I was concerned. I was so happy, even though people, people were murdered around me in Bagram. But I was happy that I have memorized the largest chapter in the Quran. And if that was my case, imagine the people who've, who've been there for 13, 14 years. They've memorized the Quran from back to front and left, right and center and know it inside out. So they did maintain its preservation. We're, we're a little bit ahead of schedule, so I'm, I'm, I want to ask you about something that that's kind of related to, obviously, the conversation we're having just now. Could you share a little bit about um, the difference in tadabbur, in your kind of pondering and contemplation on the Qur'an, you know, while you were in prison as opposed to, you know, life uh, as a free person? Um, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I've got notes, they're still covered in dust, that I have from Bagram. Now, this was unusual because Bagram, normally, they didn't give us access to any books or pens or this. Uh, but I, I, I did, for a very short time, got, get a, a handful of um, small notepaper and a tiny little pencil. Now, there was an American soldier. He gave me a copy of the Bible. It's a new international version of the Bible. And... Um, he asked me to read it, and he was a, a Southern Baptist, sort of evangelical in, his, in nature, and he was trying to get me to convert to Christianity. Now, a lot of the, uh, the prisoners there um, didn't like the fact that I was talking to this, to this soldier or talking to them because they said, well, why how could you take a Bible? And the, it's really interesting because the Bible has got a uh, combat cover. It's got a khaki combat cover, and I still have it. Um, and I had the Bible before several times. Um, but perhaps some of the other prisoners didn't understand this. Um, so I got into a discussion with, with, with this guy. And I said, okay, I will look at this. And I read it there and I made notes one after the other after the other. And those notes were all to do with Tawheed, with the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mentioned in the Quran, mentioned by Jesus, mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the Acts and the Apostles and so forth. It's all in there for those who wish to see. So I pulled out those little verses um, and presented them to him and said that why is this something that is that you've 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 deified a human being and uh, one after the other i said to him that here are the, all these various evidences where jesus doesn't say he's god he doesn't say he's the son of god where the um uh, david is described as the son of god uh, uh, adam is described as the son of god where all human beings are described as the children of god and so forth so I had this discussion with him, and then I said to him, this is, what, this is what the Bible says, now I'm going to tell you what Islam says. 
and this is what the Quran says. Now, you, I've looked at your Bible, you take a look at the Quran. Um, so I don't know what happened in the end with some of this stuff, but I, I found it really, I thought, you know, perhaps this was one of the things that I could do. This, this, I, 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 perhaps I could have anything else, any type of a tadabbur uh, in this particular way, or other prisoners perhaps would have struggled to do it because they, they couldn't speak English or so forth. But for me, that was one of the most important things there. And later, of course, when I was in solitary confinement, um, every time I came to this, of course, the obvious surah of Yusuf, السلام, of the Prophet Joseph. And every time I come to the words, when he is finally discovered by his brothers after he's come, you know, been imprisoned and taken to uh, uh, all, all that, you know, it's, uh, stuff is done against him. And he's finally in this position of power at the treasury and his brothers come to him and they come to realize they say Yusuf. are you yusuf and he says i am yusuf and this is my brother and then he says those words that like that send us you know a shock through me and, and tingle down my spine there's no vengeance upon you this day like when he says that after everything they have done to him because all the way through, as a prisoner, you're reading through that story and you're crying. You see that this father's separated from his son that he loves so much. I'm saying, I, I know that because I'm separated from my son that I, I love so much and my children. Then you see that he's accused of a crime that he's not committed. Then you see that he's thrown into prison. Then you see that, um, you know, his own people, his blood brothers have sold him down the river as they did, as our bro brothers in Pakistan sold us to the Americans without any legal process. And in the end of all of that, he comes out and he says, that there's no vengeance upon you this day. And it reminds me of the Prophet ﷺ when he enters Mecca, though the, the, the Quraysh, the, the pagans have done so much evil to him, they've thrown him out, they've tortured him, they've abused him, they've killed his relatives and uh, made, a, made a foreign of him. He comes back and he says, he says, La He says, No vengeance on you this day. Go for you are free. And and that part of it keeps coming back to me. No matter what people think of us or say about us, I see it in Muhammad Walid Salahi, I see it in Faisal Kandari, I see it in Shakir Amr, I see it in Samuel Hajj, I see it in, in the hundreds of brothers released from Guantanamo. The same vision, the same view, the same. Uh, way in which the outlook on life is they don't seek vengeance. Yeah, that's my accept it from all of you. Um, you really are, uh, subhanAllah, our, our heroes in, in so many ways. Um, which actually kind of um, brings me to, I guess, the more resistance aspect of this conversation. Because we know that in Islam, uh, and sorry, this I just want to say before I ask this question. Um, uh, right after I ask this question, Muslim answers. I'm going to open the the floor for people who want to um, ask questions or they want to um, kind of tell stories of their own, um, maybe from experiences they've had or you know of others. It's, it's very very welcome. Just as uh, your remarks, so you know, I'm extremely protective over all trauma survivors. So please be kind 
um, otherwise I will block you immediately. It's it's very, very simple as far as I'm concerned. So regardless of whether or not Marzen wants to hear you, I will block you immediately. Uh, but please do ask questions and I look forward to, to hearing from you. So do um, do raise your hands and I'll let you into the room inshallah. But Marzen, yeah, there was a, um, there was a res form of resistance that many of the, the detainees use, which is a hunger strike. And of course we know uh, in Islam that um, to harm your own body um, is is a problem. How how did you uh, how did the brothers really get over this kind of fiqhi conundrum? Because you know, really, all they had was their own bodies in order to to resist. Um, so, could you tell us more about that, please? Yeah. Um, so, this is something that I've discussed with some of the brothers. I wasn't part of the hunger strikes um, when I was there. I was mostly in solitary confinement. Didn't even know what they were going on uh, for the most part. Uh, and of course, the, they started in earnest after I left. But I have discussed this with quite a lot of prisoners, um, many of whom were force-fed, many of whom lost more than half their body weight, like Shakar Amr and others, uh, under the hunger strikes. Um, and what I can say about this is that it, it, it's an act of desperation. It's, um, it's not unique to Muslims to hunger strike. Of course, we know this throughout history. Uh, hunger striking is something that um, has, ex has existed uh, in many uh, different places, whether it's, it's Ireland, India, or indeed this place. Um, and people are, you're right, the, the principle of harming yourself, of causing harm to yourself, is one that is very, very strong. And one that, again, th there was some difference of opinion to, 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 to what extent a person could hunger strike. If it meant to the point at which uh, the hunger strike will be harmful to you, then that's the point at which you stop. Um, but if you are able to hunger strike for the purpose of um, seeking your rights and protecting the rights of others, because you have no other way. Remember, most of the prisoners at that time didn't have access to some of the most basic things that convicted um, murderers, mass murderers, and so forth, uh, prisoners uh, on the US mainland and other places have. Phone calls newspapers, visits, television, uh, study courses, uh, lawyers, uh, hope uh, for a, a knowledge of what it is that you're supposed to have done, uh, evidence, uh, um, court, all these things that I'm saying now that we take for granted over here. And I dare say, even in countries that are not as, as well-developed as the United States of America, uh, these things do exist, uh, but none of them existed there. So in the absence of all of that, of course, uh, this is the this is Rura. It's a, it's a very strong Islamic principle that you have no choice. It's necessity. And even then, some prisoners agreed with it and some didn't. And this was the beauty of, again, of, of the ikhtilafat, of the, the fiqh, of the, uh, the difference of opinion. Some people took it uh, and um, took that view. Others didn't. Um, and those who did do it, did it. It, they, in their view, uh, for the intention of helping everyone. And those who didn't do it said that it's better for us to be patient and uh, patient, in the, patient in the face of uh, this terrible uh, oppression is also part of our, of our faith and our, and our history is filled with stories of people being patient um, in the face of torture. So both had good uh, intentions and both um, uh, followed through with whatever they believed. And in the end, the hunger strikes, of course, did have an effect around the world. 
uh, and people did speak about it and the Americans were very concerned that nobody dies as a result of the hunger strikes and that's why they were force-fed. Uh, tubes were forced into people's nose, noses while they were strapped down to chairs and liquid food was pushed into their bodies uh, through that method. Um, that in itself shows that the, the, the hunger strike was effective. No, um, you know, there, there are so many great accounts of this. Samuel Hajj's got a brilliant um, as does Ahmed Rashidi. But as he was speaking, I'm reminded of that, that sequence in uh, Ahmed Rashidi's book. Um, it's called The General, for those who haven't had a chance to pick it up yet. It's a really honeymoon, where he talks about one of the, the plans that he makes up. And this is why, one of the reasons why he was called the general, because he was always like plotting ways to get his rights. And, you know, one day he, um, he says that I'm pacing around my, my cell trying to think, okay, how can, we, how can we get our rights in this situation? And then he starts spreading the word around to all the brothers, rip up your shirts, mm. right? I think it, I can't remember if it was, it was the whole, the whole suit, right? But effectively, it would left them. It would have left them, you know, kind of bare. Yeah. And what that did, of course, is that it, you know, it made it life very, very difficult. You know, in terms of like they wanted to pray salah and they wanted to cover up, they wanted to do all of these things. But the message that the administration received was, well, we can't let these guys have legal visits and have ICRC visits if they don't have clothes. Right, and so it was such a brilliant strategy, but of course came a lot of a great in terms of their own felt. Yeah. So look, I, I you know, I've um, asked enough questions now, um, and I'd really like to invite others to come into to the conversation if that's okay. So we've got a couple of people already who have raised their hands. So I'm going to let Amar in, inshallah, if if I can do that. Assalamualaikum. Amar, brother, Um I don't have a question. Um, I actually uh, know everything about you, what someone can know. Um, I just had a call um, a minute ago with a very good friend of mine. And I think you know him as well because you mentioned his name, Muazzam, uh, Muhammad Ghutzlahi. And uh, he just told me that I should greet you and that uh, he's very proud of what you do here. And inshallah, I'll bring him to Clubhouse as well. And maybe we can do something together um, for the people listening. Uh, Muhammadu was uh, 15 years in Guantanamo as well, together with Wazam. And um, so I know all the stories and uh, I think I know too much. And uh, that's why... Very emotional moment for me, I have to say, because I read your story as well. Um, may Allah bless you for everything and then and give you and grant you the highest stage of paradise, inshallah. And so because you've mentioned him, I'm sure people have already come across this. But if, if let me take the opportunity to say about Muhammad Walid Salahi is, is an exceptional brother, exceptional character. Um, like you said, 15 years in Guantanamo. Um, and he... If you see the interviews that he's done, he just wants peace. He wants goodness for everybody. His guard, a friend, one of his guards, Steve Wood, came to visit him in the desert. And he accepted Islam before that 
totally separate from Muhammad. Muhammad didn't have anything to do with it. He did it totally of his own accord. Um, and Muhammad then is, you know, he's got a Hollywood film that's being made, that's made about him. It's about to be released in Britain, I think on the 1st of April, called The Mauritanian. It stars famous actors uh, such as Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch and others. And, you know, the thing that I asked him in, in one of the discussions I had with him uh, was, what do you think about this film being made about you and based upon your best-selling book? He says, um, I tried to watch it, but it's too violent for me. I don't watch violent <laughs> films. I, I, I only watch comedies. That was his response. Imagine you've not seen a film about your own life because it's too violent. Just imagine that for a moment. Um, so may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and bless you. And uh, I pray that we, we, we get to see him here soon in the UK as well. Inshallah, yeah, we, we, we're working on, um, for everyone, I think, who don't know, uh, he's a free man, alhamdulillah, since 2016. But uh, on the other side, he's still a prisoner of his own country because uh, they are denying him any visas and any allowance for traveling. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, just, I, that's, just something that I, that's something I hope that we could work on together to try to, I mean, Inshallah. his message is so powerful. And the people that are coming to his support and his, uh, you know, to, to his to his side, uh, are going to grow, inshallah. And I believe he will be able to to we'll be able to meet him, inshallah. And uh, we will do some some rooms here in club on Clubhouse in German language because I, I I don't know if you know, but he speaks German. But I would love to see you and maybe as a surprising guest. Um, the clubhouse as well in some English speaking rooms. Uh, Asim, uh, sorry again for just rushing into this room and no problem yes, for, raping exactly this, for, for raping the hands raise button. No, um, no, okay. But that, that was emotional. And uh, Mozam, please um, see you soon. We are connected. Asim, connected as well. And uh, inshallah, uh, I will just give anyone else uh, now the, the, the chance to ask some questions. Thank you, brother. Shukran. Assalamu alaikum. Adam, salam alaikum, Afi. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Nice to see you, Afi. Lovely to see both of you, and welcome to Clubhouse, Brother Mazum. It's a, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit strange for me to see you here. I'm not going to lie, but uh, we'll move beyond it. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you guys for hosting this event on Clubhouse. Um, I joined a little bit late, but still super happy to be here. I caught. Um, uh, a great chunk of what you were saying towards the end there, Mazam, a couple of the last questions. Um, but I kind of wanted to uh, hear a little bit about, um, I know this is an event about like political detainees, but I was really curious to hear about, um, and I've heard you speak about this in person before, but um, maybe to remind some of us um, about some of the work that you've been involved in, in, in the, since the time you've um, uh, been uh, back out on, uh, back out with us. Um, so you yourself have been a like vocal opponent in cage also um, of the government's counter-terror strategy um, with student groups like Students Not Suspects, but also like in wider society trying to mobilize the Muslim community um, to uh, prevent people from, um, <laughs> I didn't realize I used that word there, but to prevent people from ending up in the situation, right? Where they're uh, treated as like, where Muslims are treated as a suspect community and we have this, Instant, like this endless cycle of people ending up in in this system where we're political detainees and what have you. Um, so I wanted to hear a little bit about the difficulties, though, a different uh, side of the conversation, difficulties that you've had in mobilising the Muslim community, um, P 
people often have like a a, a fear, a, a very genuine fear of organi organizing work or campaigning work. Um, but also sometimes religious um, sort of um, questions that pop up in terms of uncertainty about the permissibility of these things. Um, so I just wanted you guys to shed um, some light on that um, so there can't be any doubt with regards to these kind of things, inshallah. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Um, just, just to say that I mean, I, I know this subject, this subject matter is, is as you've asked, is, is quite wide, but um, I, I'd hope that we kind of try to stick to the... Sure, yeah. sure, no problem. In that case, in that but, case no but, problem. But, but I will very shortly answer, let me just very shortly answer one little aspect of it. And that is that um, I think one of the things that repeatedly uh, recurs is that people say that if you get involved in this stuff, then the authorities will, will come for you, you'll get in trouble and uh, keep your head down and there's no sense in rocking the boat and so forth. Um, from an Islamic perspective, it, it's it's a really simple thing. Uh, the Prophet said, "Man ra'a minkum Whoever from amongst you sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. If he's unable to do that, then to speak out against it. And if he's unable to do that, then um, at least despise it in his heart. And that is the weakest of faith. So we're asking people to be take the middle path. We're not telling anybody to change something with your hand. Uh, we're not telling anybody just to hate it only in your heart. We're saying, use your voice. And indeed, people here, you know, and this is one platform, it's, this is really, uh, it's only about your voice. Um, so voices are important. And one of the, one of the, the, the first, um, I mean, now perhaps it's cliched often in many places, but Cage literally, when it was called Cage Prisoners, used to be, its motto was the voice for the voiceless. And it was because those prisoners in Guantanamo uh, really had no voice because nobody knew anything about them because they weren't even allowed to write letters home without them being heavily redacted. Uh, so it was important that voices came out. And had the Guantanamo prisoners remained silent and said nothing, everybody else, all of the detractors and the opponents would have turned around and said, Guantanamo's not so bad. These guys ain't complaining. So it was imperative that the stories of Guantanamo came out uh, from the voice of the prisoners. Jazakallah. And uh, my apologies, I didn't mean to steer you away from no, no, the main okay. topic of the conversation. No, no, I'm delighted. You're welcome. No, Jazakallah. Okay, let me add Sheikh Naved. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Firstly, Jazakallah khairan to both of you for uh, hosting this. You know, subhanAllah, um, Reminders like this, I think, are definitely needed. Uh, often living in the West, we forget about the realities uh, of our brothers and sisters across the globe. And Jazakum Al for allowing me the opportunity to ask my questions. Uh, I do have three questions. Please answer whichever ones uh, you want. Number one, um, you spoke about your Islam and the role that it played in, in giving you strength. But I was wondering if you could speak to what other you know, mechanisms you had in terms of retaining your own sanity and your own mental health as the first one. Number two, um, amongst the detainees that are there, was there a sense of uh, resentment towards the ummah in the sense that how could they forget us? How could they abandon us? Uh, or a sense of hopelessness that, you know, you know, why are we not worthy of care? And then the, the third and last one, um, in terms of, I, I don't even know how to, to phrase this one, but so let, let me think about the third one. And uh, just if you can answer either of the first two, I'd appreciate it. Jazakum Oh, yeah. okay. um, so, Actually, sorry, sorry. I just remembered the, the, the third one. 
uh, from a different light. My apologies for cutting you off. Was um, in terms of a sense of religiosity of all of the detainees, would you say that they would all consider them as religious and attain, you know, try to retain their faith? Or was there like a fluctuation where some even, you know, left off certain aspects of the faith? Brother Navai, it's good to hear from you and good to see you here. Jazakallah Subhanallah, reward you. Um, I I sometimes don't like taking groups of questions because I forgot your first quest question. So please, could you repeat it? My first question is on uh, besides uh, Islam, what other tactics or mechanisms did you yes. have to retain okay. your own sanity and mental health? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So um, one of the things other than Islam that for me was um, uh, poetry. So I, I, I have not written poetry before Guantanamo. I have not written poetry after Guantanamo. I only, only ever wrote poetry in Guantanamo. And I found it very therapeutic. I found it uh, thoughtful. I found it expressive. Um, my poetry ranged from being very uh, philosophical in some ways, uh, reminiscent of family, reminiscent of, of uh, everything that's lost, uh, thinking about issues like time, uh, about issues of what it's like to be homeward bound. But then I had others that were very uh, in, incisive uh, against what I thought were the Americans and, and what they were doing. I had one poem called Indictment USA, which is a rhyming history of the United States of America, which is completely negative. Um, I had others that quoted from Malcolm X and from uh, Martin Luther King and, and others. And so they, they varied. And it, when I wrote those words, I knew that the Americans would get to see them. I knew that the census would get to see them and I wanted them to see them. Um, so it, that was one aspect. Another aspect was trying to keep fit. Um, in the early days, they wouldn't even let you do press-ups. They thought that well, if you're doing press-ups, you can get strong. If you get strong, you can challenge the, the, the soldiers and start, start fighting back. Um, but I had done Taekwondo for, and, uh, for many years in my youth and started to remember some of its principles and some of its training techniques. So I'd started to do some of those in my cell and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I think in one sense, I was probably, probably fitter in Guantanamo than I'd been anywhere else. And that is simply because even in a, when they took you out into a cage, which was 15 foot by 15 foot, you could, you could do several things in that cage. You could run, you could walk, you could sit. Um, uh, you could jump up and down. You could try to climb the cage and, and look over and see. May, you might be able to get to see, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. But uh, so I, I just ran. I ran circles, literally. Imagine in, a, in, a, imagine in one of your living rooms, running a circle in your living room. It was like that, round and round and round and round. And I worked out one day, I think in, a, in almost a 45-minute period, I'd, I'd done about two miles. I worked that out one day by, by counting each step. Um, and I think the other thing I have to say, uh, and it's important I say it, that uh, there were very decent American soldiers. There were lots of decent American soldiers who to this day are my friends. And uh, they kept me company. They spoke to me, especially in solitary confinement. They bought me things that were, would have got them thrown at the army. They bought me sometimes chocolate, sometimes bought me news, sometimes bought me... You know, the first time I ever saw the film Snatch, uh, which if you haven't seen it, then, you know, you haven't lived properly. But uh, it was in Guantanamo. It was an American soldier. He sneaked in a DVD player and he put on this film, which was hilarious and funny and entertaining. So uh, all of these things, inshallah. Um, 
and now I've forgotten your second question. Was there was there any bitterness? Um, yes. Is that, was that the question? That, yes. Any resentment or bitterness uh, towards the Ummah? You know, my recollection, and I hope it's not you know rose tinted. My recollection is particularly in Ramadan, in the last Ramadan where I was with other prisoners and in that communal, in, in, not in communal cells, but in those cells that I described earlier on, where the person that the Imam is making dua in Qunut and he's making dua for the people of Burma and making dua for the Ummah and making dua for people in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere and in Pakistan and so forth. I think they, and, and I know this for a fact, it's come to me many times that they are very concerned about what's happening in the Muslim world. Uh, whether it's in, to the Uyghurs in China. In fact, there were Uyghurs, there were 22 Uyghurs there with us in Guantanamo. Um, and so this became, everybody was concerned about everybody else's background and where you're from. Uh, you're from Libya, oh, Gaddafi's over there. You're from uh, Syria, oh, Assad's over there. So there were, there were enough uh, people for us to be concerned about the rest of the Muslim world. And they understood that the Muslim world is in turmoil anyway. And what could they expect? What, what, who was going to come to their rescue? There wasn't going to be any country that was going to come to the rescue. So, in fact, they, they, they uh, my view is most of them resigned themselves to their fate. And those who, who could struggle did by hunger strikes and other things. Um, but most of them said, this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will. This is the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And perhaps some good will come out of it. So I don't think there was resentment towards the Muslim world. Perhaps there might have been in the early days, um, but but not not after. And sorry, your final question. My final question, Zakallah Khair, was um, about religiosity. Uh, as in, did everyone there manage to retain the religiosity, or did some waver in faith and some leave off certain actions? Okay, so in truth, I have to say this. I mean, you know, we know everybody's not the same and we're not robots. Neither does your own iman remain the same, neither does everybody else's. So it goes up and down. And there were those who left Islam. There, were, there was at least one person I know. I mean, one person I know for a fact who said that he had left Islam. Um, when I say he left Islam, it was because he himself had come from a background that he wasn't a Muslim to begin with. He embraced Islam, went on its journey, ended up in Guantanamo people campaigning for him back home. None of them were Muslims. His father was not Muslim. None of his relatives were Muslims. And he couldn't relate to people from Afghanistan, from Yemen, from Mauritania, from all of these places who in the end would go back to Muslim families. But he didn't have that. So when I spoke to him, he said, look, in my heart, I'm a Muslim still. I'm still a Muslim. But I can't pray. I can't fast. I can't do all of those things that um, you, other guy, you guys have done from your childhood that is quite normal for you. Uh, I, I feel more connected to the guards in many ways than I do to you guys, or at least to the, to the with the Westerners it was a bit different, but to, to the others, to the majority of the prisoners. And some of the prisoners dealt with him harshly, but the majority were not. The majority were said, okay, look, he's, just, he's going through his own journey, he's having his own difficulty uh, in prison. We can only advise him. And in the end, he, he's responsible for whatever he wants to do. And that's, he still says in his heart he's a Muslim. And so to conclude, I mean, in that, to your question, uh, it varied. There were all sorts of people. As Asim said earlier on, there were different people. There, there were even Shia. There were some Shia people there who had different views and different beliefs. There were people from the Hanafi school of thought, the Deobandi school of thought, from uh, rigid Salafis to... Uh, Ikhwani types, as you uh, as you call it, those who different uh, people who are more Sufistic in their in their outlook. So they they were all there from forty odd different countries, and uh, you know a, a 
a microcosm of the Ummah was in Guantanamo. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Barakallah feek, brother. Please do a question, I'm going to now invite uh, Sister Fatima to please ask a question or a comment. Assalamu uh, Thank you so much, first of all. Honestly, that was... Um, it's one of the most powerful and emotional rooms I've actually been on here. Um, and, yeah, just thank you so much for sharing that because... It's obviously quite traumatic still, but it's an important reminder for us to hear because um, you know, our memory can be a bit fickle sometimes. But I just, I was struck by what you were saying with regards to sort of which torture treatments or whatever treatments the, the detainees in Guantanamo, what treatments actually sort of traumatised or hurt them the most. Um, and it got me thinking about political detainees in general outside the context of the war on terror in places like Guantanamo Bay and I would be really interested to hear your thoughts in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement around pushing for the abolition of places not just like Guantanamo Bay but prisons in general where you know non-political detainees are also sometimes subjected to that kind of treatment I mean, Islamically, should be should we be working towards a modern like that? Like, you know, um, and please, you know, feel free if you feel this is not relevant to the discussion. But should we should we be working towards an abolitionist model? If so, how you know where do we start? How do we actually go about that? So yeah, that's my question. Um, alaikum, for your comments. Um, I'm not going to try and dwell on this subject too much, but simply suffice to say that I don't think my personal view is that long-term imprisonment for people is was never the goal of, of Islam or the Sharia. It was never uh, the idea of a sijin mu'abbat, that you stay in life in prison or, or long-term. There were other deterrents and other um, aspects of that, that that prevented that from happening. Um, I know we're in different completely different times now but as somebody who's not only spent time in prison in Bagram and Guantanamo but also in Belmarsh here in the UK um, I've seen I've personally experienced uh, the types of people and the the, the cycle of prison for people uh, Guantanamo's prisoners I would have to say are not your they're not ordinary prisoners they wouldn't normally most of them would not normally have ever been in a prison uh, had it not been for this war on terrorism. Uh, so it's kind of, I would have said it's unique other than the fact that the war on terrorism is widespread and it's, it's, its tentacles are everywhere and there's a Guantanamoization of, of, uh, uh, of legal systems around the world. But if you were to ask me about my views of prison, they're, they're not very, I don't have good views of prisons and, and it would be surprising if somebody like me would have uh, I have seen people go in and out and in and out of prison, and I'm talking about what's known as the ordinary decent criminals as opposed to uh, political prisoners, uh, and they're in a cycle. And I've seen those people and seen the cycles they're in and the institu institutionalized view they have uh, of these prisons. So I'm not a supporter of that report at all. I think there need to be other ways of, of uh, trying to deal with crime and punishment, but I'm no expert on this. Zakhmakhar, sister Fatima, I appreciate you um, you asking that question. Yeah, um, this is quite a unique 
conversation um, that we're having. Um, so for those of you who kind of maybe entered the, the conversation a little bit late, um, it's really, we're asking Mazen Beg, who's a former Guantanamo Bay detainee, to really reflect on how uh, Islam was practiced within the various detention sites that he was held in, how generally his knowledge of the other brothers who were um, who were held alongside alongside him, you know, how did they match the contours of staying true to their faith while also being in very difficult circumstances? But I appreciate um, that, of course, our conversation does lead to so many other um, issues. So I'm going to invite Brother Omar to ask a question. Assalamu alaikum. Yes, uh, well, my question is uh, first of all, thank you for uh, having this discussion and talking about this in general. It's, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, what my question is, it's from Muslim. Uh, may God bless you, Muslim. Um, the first question I have is how is life after being held in Guantanamo Bay and how are you treated by people and the authorities where you live uh, has your life changed regarding you traveling places just living normally like are you targeted in somehow are you um, what's the word in English like are you stalked by the intelligence service in your country, and so on? So my the the question is the first question is how is life in regards to basically everything after you've been there, and the second question is how do we battle different terrorist organizations like ISIS and all the other ones that exist? who are doing harm in the name of our religion how do we battle that how do we uh, say that they are not islam they are not our religion how do we further ourselves from those groups and not become affected and not let the people be affected of it, both the Western people and the Muslims living in the West also. How do we... Mm. Yes. Salaam. Uh, yeah, I hope you're well, inshallah. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to dwell upon myself too much uh, because since my return, I, I have been targeted, um, as have many others. But I've been targeted in particular, but that's because of the choices I've made. I have made an active choice to campaign against uh, the war on terrorism, to speak out against the injustices, um, and of course, uh, the wider subjects. It's not just Guantanamo that I speak about now. I speak about, as I said, the Guantanamoization of the uh, of laws and legislation around the world, and that has put you in the, that puts you into the crosshairs of people um, where we will be targeted. So that that price comes, and I, I've been ready to pay that price and have done and continue to do so. Uh, in answer to your second part of your question, yeah, I mean, ironically, I, one of the reasons why I was thrown into prison 
in 2014 was because I had gone to Syria and because of the British government and many other governments' um, inability to discern between those who were fighting the revolution and trying to defend themselves from uh, the regime of Assad and at the same time uh, not being able to see that just because somebody is a Muslim and believes in the right to defend themselves, they will automatically um, gravitate towards groups like ISIS um, who, who have killed far more Muslims than they have killed Westerners, but nonetheless are a plague on all our houses. So the way that you deal with this, in my view, is, uh, is, is, is a Sherlock Holmes school of thought that first you eliminate the impossible, then the solution, no matter however improbable, is what remains. And so you Im eliminate every method that have tried that has been tried that has failed. Um, and particularly now, because if you use a method which has been in the West to use, for example, the Prevent program or a series of anti-terror legislations which have targeted the entire Muslim community or the entire activist Muslim community, uh, then you've You've turned everybody into your enemy. Uh, and it was simple. The first, the, the people that were challenging ISIS uh, were the people who had the most credibility, people who themselves had been prison in, in prison, people who themselves who were fighting uh, against injustice. Uh, they were the primary people fighting against ISIS and its, its uh, toxic <coughs> view of Islam and targeting innocent people that were... Uh, as I said, killing far more people in the Muslim world than they did in the West. <clears throat> and that could have continued. That could have happened organically. And that was happening. The amount of people I've spoken to um, who, who were confused about ISIS, uh, both in, in prison, both in Belmarsh and both outside, uh, I can't even list. Um, but when the government wants to say, well, basically, you're all the same. There's not much difference between you and ISIS and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and Sufis and uh, anybody who wants to resist, or if they put us all in one category, um, then where would you find the space to be able to challenge such groups while maintaining your own integrity? So that's the conundrum we have. But we have a wealth of knowledge within Islam uh, to be able to challenge ISIS very easily. And it has been done uh, and continues to do so. Okay, so I'm going to invite our sister Iman now. Assalamu alaikum, Iman. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for inviting me up here. Um, and, for, and to both of you for sharing all of this today with us. Um, it's a real privilege. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, Brother Muazzam, you, you spoke about, or you referenced kind of a, a little bit about the communal life there. You spoke about having, you know, prison shuyu, um, yeah. and about Friday prayers. And I wanted to ask for more insight into that community space. I mean, you know, were you all able to celebrate together, for example, Eid and Ramadan? Uh, were there were there classes going on outside of just Friday prayers? Uh, you know, what was the okay. religious okay. life like? Waalaikum salam, sister, and Jazakallah uh, khair for your question. Very, it's a very, very good question, bringing us back to the subject, which I like. Um, there were different marahil or different types of periods of Guantanamo and Bagram where different things happened, different situations occurred. So in some cases, 
we could be in communal cells, but we're not allowed to talk as in Bagram. In other cases, um, we were in cells that were close to one another. We could see one another, but we couldn't step out of those cells or we couldn't even shake one another's hands. Uh, there were other cells where I wasn't held, like in camps five and six and seven, where there, it's like more like an American prison system um, where people were eventually allowed out and to do stuff together. So things varied at different times in different places. And some of those I experienced, some of those I didn't, but I've learned uh, directly from the guys who were there. Uh, in terms of prison shiuch, as it were, it was, uh, it, th- there was a, a handful who were knowledgeable in Islam, who were, uh, probably wouldn't have been recognized as shiuch in, in the real meaning of the word outside of Guantanamo, but they were in Guantanamo because they were the most knowledgeable and have since, because of the amount of study and experience they've had, have uh, in their own right become shiuch, though they're, they're, they're few, few and far between. Um, and so issues of fiqh issues would come along. Uh, can I, for example, uh, questions like, can I get legal representation from, from the military who sees me? Can the military that sees me as its enemy, can they represent me? Can my enemy represent me? Is that a legal position that I can have? So these, they, they would have discussions, fiqh discussions about whether this is permissible or not permissible. Um, and so forth. So with many questions like this would arise. Uh, in terms of, uh, as I said, there were different two periods of time. There was one particular uh, chaplain who works for the U.S. military, whose name was James Yee, but he himself was a Muslim. He saw what was happening with the prisons, and for the first time, he managed to bring in books of different Islamic um, and, and, and more subjects for the prisoners. Um, and Prior to that, the only, the only books we had access to were, uh, you know, Reader's Digest or f- uh, um, uh, books from the 1950s or Daniel Steele novels. Um, they didn't want the prisoners to have any, any ability to read or learn something that would be of any benefit to them. Uh, so he made a change there. And as a result of it, people liked what was happening. But <laughs> the irony about ironies is this captain, he was a captain, James Yee, himself was arrested, is a captain in the U.S. Army, he's arrested, and then he's charged with various um, things to support, supporting Al-Qaeda and God knows what, all bogus charges. Um, but this is because he bought up the, uh, the treatment, the, the mistreatment of the prisoners. He bought it up, he didn't like it, he complained about it, and, and for his, for his uh, labor, he ended up four months in a military brig in the U.S.A., which was similar to being a Guantanamo prisoner. Um, so essentially, there was there was a rich discussion taking place between uh, prisoners constantly. Those who had knowledge of one thing passed it on to those who ha- who didn't. Those who spoke. Um, there's one prisoner I know, Murat Kurnas, for example. He's a German Turkish guy. He came out of Guantanamo, speaking English, Pashto, uh, Arabic, Farsi. He, he learnt it all in Guantanamo, um, and so th- 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 there was. As I said, there was nothing formal. There's no, you, can, you can't study anything in, formally in Guantanamo. But we, we do call it Jamiat uh, uh, Yusuf salam, the University of Joseph or the University of Yusuf. And for those who know, you know. Jazakallah khair, Muazzam. 
I don't know if anybody else has has any questions they want to um, ask. We've still got some time um, left for this conversation. Oh, we already do. Let me bring them in. Okay. Oh, he wasn't the first person, but this is a brother I'm definitely going to invite. Brother Ibrahim. Assalamu alaikum, mashallah. Welcome. Oh. This is a brother who, <laughs> who has experiences of stuff, mashallah. Hayakallah, Ibrahim. Uh, it's so wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. Um, to be honest, I, I really want to thank you, Brother Hassan and Brother Mazam, for such an insightful uh, conversation on Clubhouse uh, in between all uh, the pointless other conversations, to be honest. Um, I, I, I pretty much have a question for Brother Mazam, and I know that um, he kind of did touch a bit on this topic, but I kind of want uh, to dig deeper if, if that's okay. Um, just to introduce myself, Brother Mazam, I was uh, a political prisoner in Egypt for four years at the age of 17. Um, and throughout, I was born and raised in Ireland. And throughout my imprisonment, I felt like, geez, like I felt like it was, it was not only difficult mentally, but it was the most difficult spiritually um, experience that I, I, I think I would ever go through. Number one, because um, there was di- different different views of fiqh, as you have said, and you know there was different levels to, all the way from, you know, ISIS, uh, Al Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, liberals, uh, leftists. But the, at the end of the day, the most difficult perspective that I felt that really challenged me as someone who went through that was that when I was speaking to this prison guard, it's not that he didn't know anything about Islam. He knew about Islam in a, you know, in a justice perspective. He knew about Islam um, uh, from, you know, salah, from fiqh, basic fiqh, you could say. If you, if, and a lot of them did know that. But I couldn't understand to the extent that this person was willing to see me die. This person was willing to torture me. Um, I, in Guantanamo, you could say that a non-Muslim, and, I, and I, I'm not belittling it, but I wanted to kind of pick your brain on this, that, you know, being a non-Muslim soldier, you know, torturing you or treating you, I think that will p- push you closer to Allah and that will push you closer to get together somehow, even though there is, and, and, I, and I don't know this, but my question was in regards to that contradictive, you know, questioning of am i right and this falls back to our daily perspective on everything in regards to our our community in regards to our interaction with work our interaction with other muslims is am i right and am i on the right path and i and and i know you might say okay like you you got to hold strong onto the deen you got to hold strong onto the quran Uh, and you know this was definitely a core pillar of that period but when you go into when you go out of reality, I, I, for example, I had a clash of, yeah, I, I had. I'm gonna be honest about it. I, I did have a clash of like, okay, I know that on the path that I'm on is right, but I kind of wanna take a break and I wanna push back a little bit to kind of catch my breath because what I've been through is is really difficult. But also, I've had this, you know, rather of not ex- no one accepting you from 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 my from the irish community because you know uh, stuff like you're a muslim brotherhood you're a terrorist and you know we're not going to accept you you're never going to be irish and that kind of thing that happens to all the youth grown up but i really got pinpointed at it because i was 
at a perspective from the Irish public that this guy shouldn't be brought home. This guy is a terrorist. This guy is different as well. So how did you cope with, you know, it being starting to build from inside? Then once you have looked so forward to going out into freedom and the you know the the place that you've always kind of wished that of course Jenna is the, the place you've always wished to be at but the, the in the this dunya where you wanted to finally catch a breath and feel like this is my freedom I'm in between my family but yet again you still felt like a stranger and you don't belong um so I just wanted to ask and how did you deal with that like the the, the cultural perspective the dean perspective and the imprisonment perspective as well which is a lot of it of course, I, I know you and I know you know your story um, and, uh, that you got released and you're free there. I was uh, watching it very carefully and shared several things about you. Um, alhamdulillah, you had a good campaign, you had good people supporting you. Um, and I think that's always something that we should always thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for, that we have good people behind us, no matter whatever the difficulty may be. Because there are those, actually, and Asim knows this really well, that nobody campaigns for, nobody does anything for, and they're in, in, in those sorts of situations. What I'd say to you this, my brother, is this, that, yeah, you're right, of course, the, the, when a Muslim does something to you um, and is prepared to see you uh, tortured, abused, murdered, executed, it's far more painful, far, far more painful. You'll have to remember that... Uh, Nobody ended up in Guantanamo just by themselves. The Americans didn't, there were hardly any cases of the Americans actually picking somebody up directly. The overwhelming majority were handed over either by, uh, in my case, the Pakistani government, meaning Pakistani agents, people who fasted, who prayed, who uh, would quote the Quran, one who quoted the Quran to me. He quoted the verse when he says, um, Allah says that not a leaf falls in the darkness that except that Allah knows of it. He said, I know that for what I'm doing to you, I have sold my dunya and the akhirah. That's the Pakistani intelligence ISI guy uh, who was fasting and praying when he handed me over to the Americans. So, and they did this to so many other people, to hundreds. In fact, the majority uh, was handed over by Pakistan, but not just Pakistan. Or in fact, the most willing partners and this is something deeply shocking for us as Muslims, uh, were the Muslim world from Afghanistan, from Indonesia, from uh, Jordan, uh, from Muhammad Walid Salah. We talked about him just now. He was sent by his own country, by Mauritania. Um, and of course, those who weren't directly sent, the Americans, the Americans sent people to the Muslim world to be tortured. Uh, there's so many cases we've, we've documented of people being sent to Egypt, to Syria, to Libya, to Morocco, uh, to be tortured in ways that the Americans would not do, because they know these countries are masters in the arts of torture, and Egypt was one of them, of course. And uh, they threatened me, the, Amer the Americans in Bagram, they threatened me, if you don't cooperate, we will either send you to Assad in Syria or to uh, Mubarak in Egypt. And they did. I met people who had been sent to Egypt and been tortured severely. And uh, some of them uh, went to Guantanamo afterwards. Uh, so that's very, very painful. The other part that's painful that you're right about, of course, that Iman does go up and down and you do sometimes feel like you want to break. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with wanting a break from uh, activism, as it were. You should, you should take breaks from activism. What you shouldn't take a break from is your is your connection with Allah, not your, not your Iman, your Iman goes up and down, but your connection, you shouldn't take a break from that because that is what determines and keeps you in check all of the time of yourself. 
whether you're doing right, whether you're doing wrong. That, you know, that's the beauty of Ihsan, that you worship Allah uh, as if you see him and knowing that you can't see him, that he sees you. Always be aware of that. After all, aren't we in a big brother society? Aren't we? Don't you, whenever you walk in the streets, don't you know that somewhere a camera is watching you? We are the most, uh, the societies that have more CCTV than anywhere else in the world. So we should think that there's something above that watching everything. Al-Raqib, that he is watching everything. Uh, the, the other part, I'd say this, my brother, is that um, don't be worried about people not accepting you. There will always be like that. I grew up in, in Britain beaten up by skinheads, fighting neo-Nazi skinheads, and they didn't accept us. They used to say, Paki, go home, and I would to Spark Hill in Birmingham. That was home. But they meant go back to Pakistan. And I didn't. I didn't go back to Pakistan when they told me to. I went to Pakistan when I wanted to go. And so don't worry about people not accepting you because there's plenty of people who do. And in the end, even if they don't accept you, it's also happened to the Prophet ﷺ, and it's a great, uh, um, great uh, reminder for us that they boycotted him, threw him out, called him a mad poet, made fun of him, uh, did everything that they could. And he felt it. He was hurt, deeply hurt. And Allah says to him, نَحْنُ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا يَقُولُونَ we know that what they say about about you. That doesn't matter. Just remind them of the Quran. That's it. Remind them about who who's, who's worried about the, the what's going to be the final uh, destination for us. So this pain is good. It's normal. It's good that you feel it. If you didn't feel it, there'd be something wrong with you. It's something inhuman about you. It's normal to feel it. I, I feel it all the time whenever I get attacked in the press and whatever thinking. Man, I want people to like me, but everybody ain't going to like you. And if, you're, if, if bad people like you, oppressive people like you, evil people like you, there's something wrong with you. So don't ever let that get you down, brother. Thank you very much, Brother Mahazam. It was, it was kind of as well from a perspective, and I, and I really like um, for every word you gave me, it was really beneficial and really helpful because sometimes, subhanAllah, it does make delivering the message um, to people who are not liked, and that is one of the tests. But subhanAllah, when you've kind of, when as you've known, you, you, you go through such an experience and you come out, it makes it so much heavier that khalas, you feel like, you know, I feel like I've done my part, but you constantly and that is the thing that Allah puts within us that we constantly want to do and we want to help so it was that kind of perspective that I that I really needed of how to keep pushing forward um, and Jazakallah khair for it so so thank you very much and Brother Azam may Allah accept from you for, for, for I mean, putting this as well together I mean your, your brother Ibrahim is such a hero to, to so many of us and I'm not that I accept you know you everything that you're doing and compensate you for all the difficulties that you went through in Egypt and um you know, subhanAllah, it, it, I, I recently, literally last week, reread um, Zainab al-Ghazali's book um, about her time in detention in Egypt. And uh, it, it's such a striking reminder of how much more difficult it is when, you know, ostensibly it's your, it's your own that's doing it to you. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compensate you for, for all that hardship. Barakallah um, I'd like to invite uh, uh, dear brother Tamim to, to join us. Assalamu alaikum, akhi. Alaikum assalam. Jazakumullah khair, Brother Asim and Brother Mu'azzam. It's always a pleasure to hear both of you. Brother Mu'azzam, I always get goosebumps when I hear your story about the first prayer you had on the flight. Uh, just a comment rather than a question. 
So when you were talking a little bit about memorizing Surah Al-Baqarah in background, and you had asked then what would the brothers who were there 13 or 14 years have been like in that sense. Uh, it just reminded me of my uncle. He was in Hafiz al-Assad's prisons for 16 years. And among all of the kind of wretched and difficult stories that he came out with, the really one of the really beautiful ones that leaves an enduring image was the idea of, or the, the memory of um, prisoners teaching each other the Quran. So obviously they, were, they weren't allowed uh, the Mus'haf for, for much of the time. So the, the people who did know would teach the people who didn't. And he said dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, Allahu Alam, uh, left the prisons, Hufaz. Um, so that's something, I guess, there's something about that oral tradition and, you know, not even using the Mus'haf, the way the Prophet would have, ta would have taught his companions and something, something about that image, I guess, uh, is, is really powerful. Uh, brother Tamim, salam alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and jazakumullah khair for your beautiful uh, words and comments and, and for this. You've just reminded me of something, of a story that I, I really need to share uh, and it's so similar to what you've told me. Uh, when I was in, in 2012, I was in Syria in, in the village, in a village called Aqrabat uh, and I stayed with a family there for several months and there's a man there I got to know very well. His name was Abu Ahmed and Abu Ahmed, Abu Ahmed had been imprisoned by Hafiz al-Assad in Sijin Tadmur, which is Tadmur prison um, that's on the border, near the border with Iraq in the east. And he told me the story that, uh, you know, was unbelievable. He said that he was, he, as, as uh, when they, in, in the 1980s, I think 1982, when the big Hama uprising happened, him and a group of people, I mean, thousands, in fact, were, were arrested and taken into prison. And they were put into, into cells where there were jammed 50, 60 people at a time in one go, uh, literally no, no space to sit, barely any space to sit. Um, and he was a Quran teacher. And so he, he, he developed or, or got to know students and had students there. But they, as you know, there were executions. And he said there were executions being take, taking place, several scores being executed on a daily basis. And he said that they were execute, executing that many people. They didn't know who they were executing. They said, this person come, this person come, this person come, and we'll take him. Uh, only by number. They didn't even know the names of the people. And he said that when his number came, they, his students refused. They held him down and they refused to let him go. And his, one of his students went in his place and was executed. And he remained alive. And, uh, you know, when I spoke to Abu Ahmed, his, his eye, they, they poked his eye out. Um, so he's blind on one eye. He just died two months ago. But when he told me this, he said, we, 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 it was the Quran that saved me and saved us. And even those people who were getting executed, they, went, they died with the, Quran, with the Quran on their lips. And it was just amazing to meet a person like this. Um, so when you told me about this, it just reminded me of Abu Ahmed. Jazakallah khair and may Allah have mercy on all of them. Alive and dead. Okay, we have uh, another friend of ours, uh, Tasneem. Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing? Uh, Shall I you all in good health, Iman, despite uh, the situation? Yes, I'm hoping to ask, Muzam, particularly, do you think that um, the ferocity of the war on terror narrative has blunted in recent years? despite the efforts of pseudo-intellectuals like Douglas Murray. Alaikum salam, Tasneem, inshallah, I pray you well. 
Yeah, I mean, the answer, the simple answer to your question is yes. I think, you know, just this evening would we'll, we'll give evidence to that, that despite the, uh, the, 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 the efforts, continued non-stop efforts of um, such people to shut down voices, shut down, to, to marginalize and push Muslims or certain activist Muslims into a particular corner, into a pigeonhole, um, it just doesn't work, does it? It's 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 a failure. the The policies are failures. The actions, the attitudes, and the uh, the intentions of some of these people, I think, they're, they're failures. That they're not they're not successful at all. And you know, in the end, for us, we don't judge our success based upon how many numbers of followers we have, how much funding we're getting, um, who's listening to us. We are. We believe that based upon our experiences, if we've delivered a message, if we've brought some change and some good into people's lives, then alhamdulillah, that's it. We, that's how we judge success. And in the end, if nobody listens to us, we know as, as long as our hearts are pure and we're doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, success is in Allah's hands in the hereafter. So such people, for, for them, I would say to them, think of this verse, that the hereafter is definitely longer and it is better. Simple as that. So what are you going to do to us? Throw us in prison? Been there, done that. Kill us? Shahada. Throw us out of our homes? Tourism. Next. And do you think that maybe some of these um, operators who are so hell-bent on being negative to the Muslim community really are operating because they have daddy issues? <laughs> okay. I don't think I'm qualified to answer that. Just mean I think you're going somewhere else with that. So I don't know how to answer that. Question. I really don't. Exactly. Bringing a smile to my face. <laughs> okay, I'm going to invite Zaklakhet uh, Tasneem. I'm going to invite Sister Nusat. There we go. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Um, thank you for inviting me up to ask a question. And and so I'm going to switch to Mazim, another a fellow Brummy. I also grew up fighting uh, the the National Front on the mean streets of Small Heath, so not far from where you grew up, actually, okay. Um, okay. in Birmingham. Good to hear, fellow, <laughs> fellow fighter. Yeah. Though I, my question was really about. I've I've recently listened to um, an interview with. Mahmoudou Salahi, uh, you know, in regards to the film, The Mauritanian, that's just come out about his time in Guantanamo and his relationship with the, the lawyer and, and, and how she helped him. And I was struck by, um, he was talking about how he felt, he only felt truly free, and this is not just, you know, physically, but mentally, when he was able to forgive and, and fully forgive all the people who had been involved in detaining him and, and, and actively keeping him there. And only when he, had, he, he, he felt truly free of any resentment or anger, um, and felt that he had forgiven them, and that ha that's how he felt mentally free. Um, I wonder how you feel about that, and if that resonates with you, or if you feel actually holding on to some form of anger or resentment that the injustice is helping you in in, in what you do, you know, in your fight against that, that as you say, the Guantanamization of things. Thank you. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful question, Sister Zakalakhan, for that. Um, I don't know if you heard it, but I, I early, earlier on mentioned. Uh, a message I received from one of the, the prisoners, oh, sorry, one of the soldiers who guarded us as prisoners. Um, and he, he is a Native American and he was in Bagram and he said he himself had suffered uh, trauma as a result of blasts in Afghanistan, etc. And 
he, he wrote this beautiful message to me, just which I only came across just recently. And he asks for forgiveness. He says, please, my brother. He uses this term. That's what he says. Please, my brother. Brother, forgive me. I have picked up the Quran and tried to get solace from the Quran. And he, that brought me to tears. And so I wrote back to him. To, and because I, too, have come to that conclusion. I, I didn't meet Muhammadu uh, except for in Bagram for a very, very short time. I didn't know what conclusion he had come to. I didn't know that for him forgiveness was what set him free. But it's something that I have practiced with, not because I myself forgave any soldier, but they sought forgiveness. So many of them have, one after the other after the other. I can't tell you the numbers. Some of them have come here, stayed in my home, visited me, sat with me, uh, met my children and so forth. They've asked for forgiveness. And anybody, to me, this is my view, anybody who abused me, and I'm prepared to forgive them, that's my right. Anybody who abused somebody else and asked me for that forgiveness, I have no right to forgive them for that. that that's, not in my, that's not in my gift to do that. But if they ask me for forgiveness for anything that they've done to me, then I, I do believe that that does set you free. And this isn't that cliche thing that all oh, Muslims must, are required to, 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 be forgive, to forgive others in order for them to be seen as human. I don't care whether you see me as human or not. I don't, I, I'm not bothered about that. This is for my own sanity, for my own uh, taqwa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, that you forgive is better, to, is closer to taqwa, to God consciousness. This is a verse in the Quran. And uh, Allah's names, though he has many names, which includes uh, the avenger, the one who brings death, the one who brings harm, those are all parts of Allah's names. But the, the two most recited names, the oft most repeated names of Allah, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, the oft-forgiving, most merciful. Uh, so this is completely within Islamic and Muslim belief and thought and ideas to forgive. It's better and it brings closer to you. In fact, there's a beautiful verse in the Quran. He, Allah says, ahsan, Respond with that which is best. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, that you will find that when you respond with that which is best, that you will find that uh, between you and one who there is a great deal of enmity will become a close friend. And, and what better way of, of dealing with issues like that could there be? Thank you. We've got a couple of hands uh, left that are raised. This uh, room is supposed to end in... Um, yeah, 13 minutes. So hopefully we'll have time to, to get to them both, inshallah, and then hopefully we can uh, sum up a little bit. So, Majid. Can I just say one more thing for the sister? Because I yeah, of course. It's clear that these are for individual soldiers and, and so forth who didn't have age, who didn't have a great deal of agency, rather. They, they had some, but they didn't have a great deal. They didn't have a great deal of control. They weren't in charge. Uh, for those who are in charge, I have a different view. For those who are decision makers and policy makers and giving the orders, I have a totally different view. And for those I seek account from them, I seek accountability, either in this dunya or the akhirah. Thank you. Thank you. And I suppose that informs the work that you do now as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Majid, salam alaikum, akhi. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah, I'm good. How are you guys doing? Alhamdulillah. I can see you're uh, wrapping the cage hat in your photo, mashallah. Yeah, yeah. I just joined Clubhouse today, actually, um, because of this um, this room. Alhamdulillah, it's been very, very beneficial. 
Um, I had a lot of good questions as well. Actually, the last question the sister asked was similar to what I was going to ask. Um, I was going to ask Muazzam, you know this resentment and the anger inside you? I know a lot of brothers, once they've come out, um, like yourself, Shakir, etc., um, they try and, like you said, forgiveness sets you free, yeah? But when the oppression continues, even whilst you're out, there's obstacles being put in your way by the, by the home office and others. How do you deal with this, bro? Like, even, you, even though you've, you've been found not guilty, uh, they still continue making life hell for yourself and for others. How do you deal with this? Uh, well, Islam, Majid, um, good to hear from you, brother, and always good to hear your voice and, and your questions. Um, yeah, I, I think, as, as I said to the sister, you know, in, if, if, um, if, a, if an American or even the, indeed a British politician decision-maker came along and asked me forgiveness for me, I'd say, well, you'd have to follow through that forgiveness. You'd have to prove show me that you are worthy of forgiveness by uh, doing things that will make those changes, not just for me, but for other people around uh, that shows your remorse. Um, uh, these soldiers that I've been in contact with, they've all, sh- every single one of them has sh- not only shown remorse, they, some of them showed, showed that remorse while they were there uh, in, in Guantanamo. They bought things, they bought information, they gave me information about my family that I didn't have and sneaked it in at great risk to themselves. Um, and one of them, one of them, he was a Vietnam veteran. He got thrown out of, of the whole mission of Guantanamo or, or at Camp Echo, where I was, because he gave me information about people marching against the war and, and that, I had, uh, that there was a case that would finally allow Guantanamo prisoners some kind of legal representation. So I don't count those guys as the same at all in any way. In fact, they're closer to me than, 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 than Muslims or Muslim leaders and the systems that exist within those countries uh, that oppressed us in the first place. Uh, so how do you deal with those people, bro? I think the, the way you deal with such people, the Home Office and others, is, is you, you join the work of CAGE and you expose them. And if they're watching you, you say to them, I'm watching you right back with a Hawkeye. Alhamdulillah. And I had one more question for you, bro. Is that like for that? Whilst we've got our full house right now, what can we do for the remaining Guantanamo prisoners? What can we do to help their cause? Um, alhamdulillah, uh, I think recently myself and, and six other former prisoners who are all authors, we, we wrote a, a six-point plan in a letter, in an open letter to um, uh, Biden, which was published in the New York Review of Books. We are pushing on those eight points, essentially, and asking people to sign up to this that we'll be putting out very shortly, um, uh, call upon Obama to, I'm oh, sorry, um, Biden, to uh, follow through on those, on those uh, points, to release those prisoners who are already cleared. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You're cleared for release, but they haven't released you yet. Release those prisoners who are cleared for release. Uh, re- re- do away with this ridiculous notion of forever prisoner. You can only be a forever prisoner if you're convicted of something and given a life sentence. And even then, it has a tariff that has a fixed term on it. How can you hold people forever in prison? It's nonsense. Um, and then to restart the whole process of the resettlements, find homes for people who, who uh, can't go back to their home for fear of torture, uh, compensate or at least give financial support to those people who, can, um, who are unable to pick up their lives, which is probably the majority of the prisoners, and, and uh, also to, to scrap the military commissions process and to uh, use the law. You, you say your country of countries of laws, apply those laws right, rather than creating kangaroo courts that 
nobody recognizes, even you don't recognize them. So that, that's what we're asking people to do. Jazakallah, bro. I appreciate that. I've got to say, Mazam, I did enjoy um, your Obama Biden slip just now. It was perfectly <laughs> Freudian. What? Um, I mean, is there any difference between Bush, Obama, um, Trump? Well, okay, Trump maybe. We'll see. Inshallah, khair. Uh, okay, so we've got one last raised hand, which is our good friend Andleeb. Salaamu Alaikum. How are you doing, Andleeb? Wa Alaikum Salaam. I'm very well, thank you. Um, I just wanted to jump on here real quick and just say it's really so great to see you guys um, having such important com- and necessary conversations on here. Um, I didn't think you guys engaged with social media past Twitter since I hadn't seen you guys on TikTok. Um, <laughs> if uh, any of you guys, sorry, what was that? I, I I said I was going to um, I was going to send you a video that somebody made me on of me on TikTok, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> please do, please do. Um, but I'm sure if any of the listeners here have the privilege of knowing either of you guys um, in real life, they'll know that you guys are the absolute, absolute epitome of modesty and humility. So I thought I'd do the important work of um, plugging your books. Um, so you guys, if you you know need some knowledge, you know make sure you get uh, Virtue of Disobedience, which is Asim's book. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, and he's recently released um, I Refuse to Contemn, uh, which is an anthology by some brilliant writers who are also in the audience here, Dr. Shireen, Dr. Tarek, um, and obviously our absolute favourite, um, Dr. Azizat Johnson. Um, and so please make sure you get it, and you can also get Marzen's book, uh, Enemy Combatant, uh, on the CAGE website. So there you go, guys. Knowledge for your head. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Um, so, yeah, Marzam, do you have any uh, last words before uh, I wrap up after that very kind plug by Andleep? Um, I, not really, other than that this is a nice, it's a, it's a really good new experience for me. Um, uh, I just thought that this clubhouse was just a, it is clubhouse, right? It's called clubhouse. Um, that this was just another app. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, uncle, it's called clubhouse. As, as, we, as we age... As we age, it, it becomes harder and harder to keep track of these things. But alhamdulillah, I'm pleasantly surprised. And, uh, you know, uh, it's good to see such an array of people. I can see lots of faces there that, of people that I've seen or heard of that I haven't met or spoken to directly. But um, it's really good to see them here because um, I, I thought that perhaps we'd probably never cross paths. But alhamdulillah, it's good to see them. And uh, even even young Douglas is there, uh, who was mentioned earlier on. So, um Good to see him there too. Hope you learned something. Yeah, I'm not sure that's Douglas, but um, the, the real Douglas, Bakhair, inshallah. Uh, <laughs> everybody. It, this was a really um, uh, wonderful conversation. I've heard Marzam speak uh, about his time in Guantanamo on more, more times than I can possibly recount, but every single time I do it, I really come away with something new and important, something that definitely connects my heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again, so I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept it from him and, and from you all, especially those of you who um, asked questions and really helped to, to keep the discussion alive. I mean, I think for me, really, you know, all of this really comes back to the fact that no matter what circumstance you're in, this is one of the beauties of Islam, there are to keep connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're, you're in, no matter how low your iman may, may even go, 
because the duties that you're finding in life there are there are ways of nourishing that that connection to him and coming back to him in manifold ways and that's really something that 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 that's quite i think you know for for me unique and exceptional about being part of this faith alhamdulillah and i think these conversations are important as well because you know the the experience of detainees you know the detainees they're they're in the completely different world than the rest of us it's like their lives have been put on pause in terms of everything else that they might achieve in life and yet what we find when we when we listen to them is this idea that they are developing they are moving forward in their lives in ways that you could never predict because as far as i'm concerned my life would would come at a stop if i was in prison and yet mazam tells us about his his memorization of surah baqara um and and what that meant to him and his exercise regime and so many other ways in which you know he was trying to uh, develop himself in the way that other brothers were trying to develop themselves too so there are just so many lessons uh, for us to take i would ask you inshallah please um do your best to um follow the work of our organization cage um if you can please donate whatever you can to help our work um carry on of course this is all you know work that's done you know with your support you know alhamdulillah one of the benefits of cage is that we do and can completely claim that we are 100% independent of any government funding body anything but all of the work rests on the muslim community saying to us we trust you and you know we want to support you to do this work and that really means everything and it shows that you know alhamdulillah when when the community really feels strongly about an issue you you will find ways to make it uh, survive and so th- the only thing left for me to say is that inshallah uh, on friday the 5th which isn't this friday the, the friday after that uh, we've got another conversation going on uh, around the title of uh, our last book which is i refuse to condemn resisting racism in times of national security you can see a number of the contributors here on this call alhamdulillah shireen fernandez sadiq yunus uh, among them i can't spot anybody else right now but yes inshallah we will have many of the um authors who write chapters in the book kind of gathering together to talk about their experience of of writing those chapters and what the book meant to them so really for me all i can uh, say now is jazakum la khair to all of you may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all endlessly and i look forward to seeing you all again hayakum allah assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh